Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is February 17th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is You Down with the APP? Yeah, you know me. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. He is an emergency medicine physician and assistant professor at the University of Calgary. He's also an avid FOMED supporter and producer through various online outlets, including Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGM, Chris. Uh, nice song selection. I didn't know where this came from. Yeah, buddy. I, no problem. I, I think it's two years after uh, the 80s, so it's well outside of your wheelhouse. Yeah, you know, if it's not in the 80s, I have no idea. <laughs> it just stopped. 1989, December 31st, music ended for me, I think. But we're not here to talk about my musical selections because people know that I'm stuck in the 80s. So why don't you give us a case to start this podcast? So you are an administrator responsible for staffing emergency departments in a healthcare system comprising both r- urban and rural locales. The hiring pool includes emergency medicine trained physicians, non-emergency trained physicians, and advanced practice providers, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners. Prior to your hiring search, you wonder how many patient encounters are being seen by each type of physician or advanced practice provider. You also wonder the breakdown of visit acuity being seen by the different provider types. Chris, thanks for giving us that case. How about we start with some background information now? Advanced practice providers, or APPs, are primarily physician assistants and nurse practitioners, and they make up more and more of the emergency medicine workforce each year. While APPs have traditionally focused on low-acuity patient encounters, as emergency department visit volumes and physician shortages increase, APPs are seeing more complex, high-acuity patients. And in the United States, policies have been implemented to permit more independent APP practice with or without direct physician support. This increase in independent service provision by APPs and change in practice pattern to more high-acuity patients has not been formally assessed. There's concern regarding the expanding practice of APPs, and a March 2022 guideline by ASEP stated that physician assistants and nurse practitioners should not perform independent, unsupervised care in the emergency department setting. That said, given current workforce limitations, it is not feasible to continue current 24-7 staffing models in certain emergency departments and communities without APPs. And Chris, similarly, many rural Canadian emergency departments have reduced their open hours or even closed in recent years due to inadequate staffing. There are both NPs and PAs currently working in Canadian EDs, and we could see their role increase in the future should staffing shortages increase. Ken, why don't you tell us where you're going right now and where you're recording this podcast from? So I'm going up to do a a northern Ontario relief work to prevent a couple of small rural communities for their emergency departments from closing. Seems very topical with what we're talking about today. So the SGEM has done two previous podcasts on APPs in the emergency department. These focused on productivity, safety, and diagnostic testing differences between emergency physicians and APPs. Those were SGEMs 308 and 316. All right, Chris, can you give us a clinical question for today's podcast? How has the role of APPs in the provision of emergency care changed in recent years? And the reference? 
Gettle et al., rising high-acuity emergency care services independently billed by advanced practice providers from 2013 to 2019. And this is in Academic Emergency Medicine, February 2023. Oh, that makes it hot off the press, doesn't it? Very hot. All right, so let's run through the PCOT. What was the population? Emergency care providers, including emergency physicians, non-emergency physicians, and APPs, which they categorized as physician assistants, nurse practitioners, certified nurse midwives, and certified registered nurse anesthetists, who provided fee-for-service Medicare in the United States emergency departments from 2013 to 2019. Yeah, so this stuff is uh, from before COVID or the BC times. Now, they excluded providers who had received less than 50 total reimbursements within a study year for evaluation services, reflecting typical emergency critical care codes. What was the exposure? This was encounters or patient encounters seen by advanced practice providers. And what did they compare it to? Patient encounters seen by physicians. All right, let's run through their outcomes. What was their primary outcome of interest? The proportion of high acuity encounters independently billed by different emergency clinician types over time. And their secondary outcomes were variation in clinicians seeing high acuity encounters based on geography, for example, urban versus rural. The proportion of evaluation and management services provided by each clinician that were considered high, moderate, or low acuity in comparison to the total number of cases seen. And what type of study was it? a repeated cross-sectional analysis of emergency clinicians using the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Provider Utilization, and Payment Data Practitioner's Public Use File. Well, I did mention this is an SGEM hot off the press, and we're pleased to have the lead author on the show, Dr. Cameron Gettle. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and clinical investigator at the Yale Center for Outcome Research and Evaluation. In these roles, he primarily conducts geriatric-related and healthcare service research. Welcome to the SGEM, Cameron. Thanks for having me, Ken. Absolute honor to be here. Thanks for coming on the show, Cam. This is a controversial issue in emergency medicine right now. Why did you want to involve yourself in this topic? Thanks, Chris. So as an emergency medicine physician, I've observed attention and debate around this issue particularly. And also as a health policy researcher, I also felt like I could add data to the conversation. And particularly that data, I wanted to be real world clinical practice data that could determine what types of clinicians are caring for the sickest of the sick in our patients in both rural and urban emergency departments. And also to determine if current training practices and curricula should potentially be revisited. Well, it sounds like you're going in with your eyes open because I think we're going to get some feedback, uh, some comments, maybe some questions when we post this episode, both from APPs and from practicing emergency physicians. And so I, I like that you're going to be data driven here, and I hope that we can provide some data to inform the conversation. So Cameron, why don't you give your group's conclusions from your abstract, and then we will go through the actual paper. So our conclusions were... In 2019, APPs build independent services for approximately one in six high-acuity emergency department encounters in rural geographies and one in 11 high-acuity emergency department encounters in urban geographies. And well over one-third of the average APPs encounters were for high-acuity evaluation and management services. 
Given the differences in training and reimbursement between clinician types, these estimates suggest further work is needed evaluating emergency care staffing decision-making. Thanks, Cameron. Okay, Chris, let's run through the quality checklist for observational studies. Do you think the authors addressed a clearly focused issue? Yes, they did. Do you think the authors used an appropriate method to answer their question? Yes. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? It was. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes, it was. How about the outcome? Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. Do you think the authors have identified all important confounding factors? No, I don't think so. Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yes. How precise are the results? Not really an applicable question for this study. Did you believe the results, Chris? I did. Do you think the results can be applied to the local population? I think this is highly dependent on where you live and the proportion of APPs that are working in emergency departments. Do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yes, they do. And how about funding for the study? It was institutional funding from a variety of sources, including SAME, ABEM, the National Academy of Medicine, and others. All right, that's the quality checklist. Let's run through the results. They identified over 85,000 unique clinicians provided at least 50 emergency department services during one of the 2013 to 2019 study years. There were over 47,000 emergency physicians and close to 11,000 non-EM physicians and then close to 27,000 APPs. Chris, what was the key result? The key result was that APP independent billing for all encounter types increased over time and was close to double in rural areas compared with urban practices. And how about that primary outcome? The proportion of high acuity encounters independently billed by APPs increased from 5% to almost 10%. All right, and let's pick out part of the uh, secondary outcomes. APPs build more high acuity independently in rural geographies, increasing from 7% to over 16%. Yeah, they also build more high acuity encounters in urban areas, increasing from 4.8% to 8.8%. Now, conversely, EM physicians build more rural high acuity encounters in 2013, it was about 75%, and that dropped down to two-thirds in 2019. EM physicians also build more high-acuity urban encounters in 2013 at 89%, and then that dropped down to about 86%, so just a little bit of a drop by 2019. Yeah, a little bit less of a change in that urban environment. There was also a much larger relative difference in the number of encounters billed as high acuity between 2013 and 2019 by APPs as compared with EM physicians. And then finally, critical care encounters were increasingly billed independently by APPs from 2013 to 2019. It increased from 1% up to almost 3%. And I'll put a table in the show notes with all of those details. But Chris, let's get back to Cameron and start talking nerdy. We've got five questions for him. Cameron, you still there and ready to answer our nerdy questions? Yep, fire away. Okay, number one, billing. How do we prove that people are getting sicker rather than we are billing more, quote, aggressively? Thanks, Ken. We attempted to address this by assessing relative differences between the study years 
and then also between the clinician types. So our thought was that if the primary driver was, quote, billing more aggressively, we would have anticipated that the relative increases would be similar between EM docs and physicians. However, what we actually identified suggested something different. For example, in 2013, the average rural emergency medicine physician billed about 48% of their services as high acuity, which went up to 55% in 2019. So this difference reflected a 14.4% relative difference increase. The numbers were generally similar for their urban emergency medicine physician counterparts. However, on the flip side, looking at APPs, in 2013, the average rural APP billed about 23% of their services as high acuity, which went all the way up to 36% in 2019. And so that reflected a 59% positive increase. And similar numbers were identified for their urban counterparts as well. Uh, so I think the takeaway is that the large difference is 55, 50 to 55 to 14% to 15% between the clinician types really suggested that it wasn't just across the board, quote, more aggressive billing that was the issue. So your interpretation of this literature then is that it wasn't that clinicians were billing more aggressively. It's just that they were seeing higher acuity patients. Patients were presenting sicker. Yeah, I think that that's a fair interpretation. Exactly. And building on this question, uh, what about the interpretation of what is critical care? Can this vary by provider type? For example, an APP could consider a pneumonia critical care, while an EM physician who works all the time at a major trauma center considers it a comprehensive visit or equivalent. Is that relevant? Yeah, definitely relevant. Thanks, Chris. And so within the emergency department, uh, my understanding is assignment of evaluation and management codes is rarely done by the actual ED providers. And, and you, that, the comparison might be a primary care practice where the clinician does actually have a greater role in determining the level of care. So in the ED, for most shops, um, again, this isn't universal, but a lot of the coding is going to be completed by back office support staff and billers with these determined codes then being reflected in the data set that we used. And so for those billers, there are well-known standards that set and sort of dictate what are allowable billable services to be considered for critical care. And so we hope the risk of potentially added bias here is minimal. For the, the example that you discussed about a pneumonia, if, for example, a run-of-the-mill pneumonia is uh, coded or written in the medical record by an APP as critical care, that could draw skepticism from the biller and coder who reviews the charts and ultimately determines the code. Um, and hopefully that serves as sort of a checks and balances system. Um, you mentioned ASEP earlier, and ASEP does have some publicly available guidance on what does constitute critical care services. So for this example, that might include if a patient is markedly acidotic, or hypoxic requiring high flow nasal cannula oxygen support, which would suggest a substantial resuscitative effort was performed by the clinician. Okay, that's very interesting. I think that this is something that for Canadians listening to the podcast, this could be quite different in that the billers don't, or the billers aren't a system of checks and balances. And we write the billing code basically directly onto our documentation. Interesting, thanks Chris. Yeah, Chris, that's my experience working in uh, about 30 different places in Ontario doing some relief work. It is 
put on the physician to do the billing hmm. uh, coding and not uh, some back office person. It's uh, <laughs> downloaded to us to do the coding. So it sounds like in the U.S., you document what you've done. You uh, describe your encounter and then make sure that your documentation represents that encounter. And then somebody else reviews that and decides how comprehensive or how urgent or critical care code would be applied. Is that right, Cameron? That's exactly right. Yep. It probably reduces a little bit of the subjectivity of the billing and, and coding. But but yes, there's usually a third party billers and coders that determine the ultimate code. All right. Well, let's get on to nerdy point number three. And this is about non-EM physicians. I was a little bit surprised to see that there was a number of non-EM physicians and not I guess not so much that there were non-EM physicians providing care, but some of them were ophthalmologists and psychiatrists and some other specialties included in this study. I think Dr. Glaucomflecken um, would be surprised that, to actually go to the emergency department and start working. Uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Glaucomflecken did not make it into the data set as far as I know. But to that point, non-emergency medicine physicians, they are included because they make up a considerable portion of our emergency medicine workforce, as you can see from the numbers that we that we included that, that Ken, you highlighted up front. And those practitioners very commonly are prevalent in rural geographies. Um, and so consistent with some prior literature, a clinician in our data set was required to have at least 50 emergency department-based evaluation and management services within one of the study years. So the goal of, of this was it, it was intended to capture clinicians that had some modest patient volume requirement, and therefore it allowed us to look at clinicians who had a reasonable footprint in the ED setting and cared for patients that sought emergency care. And to that end, um, you know, ophthalmologists, psychiatrists, for, for our sample, this, this included 81 ophthalmologists, it included 437 psychiatrists across the years. And I think the final takeaway for this question is that uh, emergency care is not just provided by board-certified emergency medicine residency-trained physicians. And so I think we really need to understand what the practice of not-emergency medicine physicians are as well within the data set. I think that's really interesting. And we in Canada have the majority of our emergency encounters are provided by non-board certified five-year residency trained emergency physicians. It's the vast majority is primary care. Is that is that also the case in your data set that of the non-emergency physicians, was it primarily um, primary care physicians providing that care? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but the two most prevalent specialties of the non-emergency medicine physicians were family medicine and internal medicine. So those folks doing primary care that then moonlight or provide services in local emergency departments. Exactly. I'm still blown away that there's ophthalmologists out there. I think that's, that's, that's newsworthy. Yeah. I thought, I thought that was fascinating. I was looking through all the supplemental materials and I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> What's going on here? That's quite interesting. Um, my next question, nerdy question is about the database accuracy. So this study only looked at Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries. In addition, you could not separate out split and shared billing between the APP and physician. How do you think this may have impacted the results? Yeah, great question. Thanks, Chris. 
so the first one, um, the, the first question about only Medicare fee-for-services is a, a public use file. Uh, but this question that you asked is becoming increasingly relevant, particularly as the older adult population within the U.S. has embraced other non-Medicare fee-for-service insurance, particularly the Medicare Advantage plans, which are offered by private insurance companies that then contract with Medicare. Um, and so they would not be picked up in our data set. Um, the latest numbers are about 45 to 50% of the older adult population do have Medicare Advantage plans. However, I think if we had, my impression is if we had an all-payer data set, I think that we would see similar results. I don't have any reason conceptually to think that these trends that we're seeing are unique to Medicare fee-for-service and they would not be captured in Medicare Advantage or private insurance or Medicaid. Um, so I, I don't have a a reason off the top of my head to, to think that that trend would be different. Um, and then the second issue you also highlighted about the split shared billing um, is also an important part, is an important point and has a lot of policy and clinical implications, uh, particularly in the near future. So just by way of background, split and shared visits are inclusive of those performed both by an APP and a physician. Um, and so the evaluation and management service uh, would be billed in that case under the physician's identifier number. And so the opportunity of that is they would receive 100% of the Medicare reimbursement. In current times, that is as long as the, quote, substantive portion, end quote, of the physician's engagement was defined by performing the history, the exam, the medical decision making. However, it is changing going forward. In 2024, some new guidelines and policies suggest that this, quote, substantive portion is only going to be met by the clinician who provides more than half of the total time on the encounter. And so there's, is, is the emergency medicine physician going to be the one who provides more than half for that patient? And if they're not, if the APP is the one, then the payments are, are going to be reimbursed at 85% of the Medicare physician fee schedule. Uh, when they're the um, the clinician performing the substantive portion that, that's greater than half. Um, and so in, w bringing it back to our work, the Medicare files that we use designate one clinician as the provider for the encounter. And so ultimately, we believe that these estimates are, the estimates that we provide are probably conservative regarding the role of APPs within high, with high acuity encounters. You could imagine if an APP and a physician are on a split visit, the physician is going to be the one billing that encounter. And so the APP's role, the APP's engagement with these other high acute encounters is probably understated, if anything. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Based on how you describe that, I would expect that it's underreported, if anything. Yeah. I think it's going to make the data hard to tease out, though, moving forward, if you're saying it's a 50% time-based thing. Uh, that's, that's going to be difficult because perhaps a physician can do things quicker than an APP, but does that devalue the physician's knowledge, expertise, and experience because they can do something quicker and it might take someone else longer? That is that is a great question, and I think time will tell and sort of see what that bears out as, because I, I agree with you that I, I don't know if time alone is the best barometer or the best metric to say this was the substantive portion providing clinician. I, I'm, I'm curious to see how that pans out. Yeah, this is like a classic tech thing where somebody can be highly efficient at coding or something like that. And should they get paid less money because they're just super good? 
I know and have worked with PAs whose procedural skills exceed some of the physicians that I've seen because they do those procedures more often. And so they have more advanced, I wouldn't say skills because they're still performing the same task, but they can be more efficient. And so they could be doing, you know, the sutures or the casting or the chest tube or whatever that is. And is that the most substantive part? And will that take them less time, more time? And how do you, how do you split that? That's an interesting question. All right, let's move on to external validity because not everybody practices in the United States. I know that's hard to believe. And there are some listeners outside of the United States that have socialized healthcare systems and are, are not so into this billing and fee-for-service environment. Um, this was a large U.S.-based study. So how do you think the results would apply to other healthcare systems around the world, like in Europe, uh, Canada, Australia, the U.K.? Ken, I'm still in shock that everybody does not work in a U.S. Uh, emergency department, but I'm going to rely on you. I'll actually rely on you a little bit probably to help me out about Canada's system because I am a little bit naive to that. But what I have heard, read, gathered, and um, has been that some Canadian hospitals operate under annual global budgets. And again, this is pro- there's probably marked variation, but some of those are um, negotiated with provincial ministries of health. But I would imagine if we're talking about global budgets, for example, in Canada or any other European or any other country around the world, I wonder if there's less of a focus on low acuity and high acuity billing practices for emergency care, just because it's going to be a global budget, you know, from a capitated model, for example. Additionally, it seems that Canada, for example, might be more apt to rely on APPs for emergency care, you know, like we were talking about earlier, given the substantial portion of the country that is rural or super rural. Um, and, and that might make sense for APPs to play a larger role in the Canadian healthcare system, emergency care, where you can potentially have a hub and spoke type model where telehealth or sort of engagement with a supervising physician um, is made possible that way. Uh, but I'd be curious to hear you, your and Chris's take as well on how APPs are integrated into emergency care and if these billing practices are relevant to you or if this is a, a non-conversation. Yeah, I can speak from working in a sort of capitated, global-funded model for the last 10 or 15, maybe even 20 years now, and my ability to be good at billing has decreased significantly. Uh, We do shadow billing where we're supposed to, it's sort of like, you know, you're justifying your workload as opposed to being really careful because it doesn't really impact your income much. So this data would be very hard to externally apply to other healthcare systems, specifically Canada, because that's the one I'm most familiar with. Yeah, out west in Alberta definitely is more of a fee-for-service system from where I've worked. And we do kind of divide things up into more like high acuity, critical care, resuscitative care, and then comprehensive visits and simple visits. And as you can imagine, because we're a lot more involved in coding our charts and so are more responsible for the subjective nature of what billing is. That's why I had some of the questions in the talk nerdy section and was curious about how that would play into a study like this. Great, thanks, Chris. Um, I guess for a final question, is there anything else you wanna say uh, or highlight from your study, Cameron? Yeah, I think the final point I'd like to highlight is that the work, it does not address safety, quality of care, patient-centered outcomes. The work is intended to be observational and descriptive, and it's therefore 
able to provide valuable foundational data regarding what types of services are being provided by clinicians in what types of geographies, rural, urban, within the United States emergency medicine workforce. So I don't want these findings to be overstated or taken taken the wrong way. That's a great warning uh, to always not under-interpret or over-interpret the literature. All right, Chris, can you comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions? We agree with the author's conclusions. And can you give an SGEM bottom line? APPs are becoming an increasing part of the emergency department workforce in the United States and are billing for more high-acuity patient encounters. All right, and how about resolving that case that you presented at the beginning of the podcast? So as an administrator, you determine that your hiring strategy will include APPs as well as physicians. APPs will be providing critical care and be seeing high acuity patients. You use this information to balance hiring of APPs and EM physicians in your urban and rural sites. And so what are you going to tell the staff? I tell them that we are looking at how to safely staff our urban and rural emergency departments. This will be a difficult process and will adapt over time. We need to ensure that patients get the right care by the right clinician. Their safety is a top priority and we are all on team patient. A variety of metrics will be followed to monitor this implementation and ensure we get the right balance of APPs and physicians. Uh, I like that, that we're all on team patient. All right, time to announce the Keener contest winner. Last week's winner was Albert Holmes. He knew that Wilt Chamberlain holds the NBA record for the most double-doubles. Chris, what's the question this week? This week's question is, in which Canadian provinces are physicians' assistants allowed to practice? Oh, yeah, we're going to get a lot of answers from the American audience on this one. But if you do know the Canadian provinces, they're not states, they're provinces, the Canadian provinces that physician assistants are allowed to work, send an email to the SGM at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Now it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on APPs? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGMHOP. What questions do you have for Cameron and his team? Ask them on the SGM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Thank you, Chris, for doing another SGM hot off the press. I've started to plan another summer party, just so you know. It's a follow-up to the epic three-day Top Gun Maverick weekend we had last year. So, Chris, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to come back and visit me again for a Mission Impossible party. Okay, only if you have, like, the rope where I can hang down from the ceiling and somebody <laughs> catches me on a pulley system, then I'll do it. Oh, I think we're going to have an epic scavenger hunt. Oh, there'll, there'll be lots of things to do for a Mission Impossible party. I, I'm just looking forward to the invitations coming. I, I still have to figure out how they will self-destruct in five seconds. But Yeah, buddy, you got to figure that one out. It's key. Yeah, try, try sending that through the postal service. Thanks, Cameron, for uh, being our uh, guest and helping understand your project better. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciated the time. And the last thing we have our guests do is read the SGEM tagline. Remember, be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Get out with LPC, get out with LPC.